Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Running a restaurant involves making a lot of tough decisions, but choosing Touch Bistro's POS isn't one of them. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, offers an all-in-one POS and restaurant management system that's easy to use, easy to manage, and easy to afford. Find out why thousands of restaurants trust Touch Bistro to help them simplify operations, increase sales, and deliver a great guest experience. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of The Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. We're so happy you could join us today because we've got a good story to tell. We've got Aaron Lyons. Aaron Lyons has got multiple units with Dish Society. He's got a brand new concept that's only a couple months old. He's going to tell us about that and the process that he was able to survive to develop a concept during the pandemic. So Aaron Lyons, welcome to Corner Booth. Thanks for having me. Well, I think our listeners always enjoy if somebody could explain to them a little bit about their personal background. What was your history and how did you determine that this was the right business for you? The quick version of this is I was not a restaurant person, never really grew up dreaming of opening a restaurant one day, like so many other people. I, I've always been entrepreneurial. So I've, I've had a number of different businesses. I've worked for startups. I've sort of been on the other side, on the investment side of that. And so I've always just been around entrepreneurs my whole life. And so really where it started for me was I was a consultant early in my career and I was traveling around a lot. I was eating out all the time and I just found it difficult to find, you know, what I wanted on a regular basis. And you know, I just became kind of obsessed with this idea of filling this void. Now, this was like 2007, 8, 9, 10 timeframe. And, you know, fast casual in air quotes had just sort of really started to emerge as this really thriving segment. You know, it was better and fancier and cooler than QSR, right? Had higher quality products, but, you know, price point was still very reasonable. And so that whole segment was really starting to take off. And that's the segment that I felt like as a consumer, I wanted to see more of because, you know, I wanted to eat good options, but I didn't want to go through a drive-thru, but I also like didn't want to to go sit down at Houston's at noon and valet and then wait for the server to take my water order and, you know, do all of this stuff and then have to tip. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, I just wanted a sandwich or chicken, whatever. Right. And so... I just became obsessed with the idea of kind of filling that void, something in between, right? And I didn't, at first I was kind of really stuck on this fast casual deal. And then as I started doing more research and sort of kind of going through the process, I sort of landed kind of somewhere in between on this flex casual concept where we do counter service during the day and full service at night. And I did that because I was going into these fast casual concepts at night and nobody was there. No one was eating dinner or very few people were, right? You know, I wanted to have a full dining room all day. And I wanted to do alcohol and have like a good local craft selection of beers and wine and do cocktails and have a really good coffee program and do brunch and all these things. And I just felt like I didn't want to be one dimensional. 
So sort of shifted the brand a little bit, started, you know, really building that. While I was in kind of 08, 09 timeframe during the financial crisis, I kind of jumped out of the corporate world and went back to business school to get my MBA. And I used that two years as kind of my incubator for growing and just developing this idea. And it was really great because I got to talk to a lot of like super smart people, be around a lot of people, you know, talk through professors and classmates and, you know, having that .edu at the end of your email address gets you access to a lot of people. And I was able to set up meetings with other restaurant owners and just say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you mind if I pick your brain? And everybody was really great and gave me a lot of help. And I got a lot of traction, you know, I was able to really hone in and flesh out the idea for Dish Society, wrote the business plan, graduated, started raising money, started looking for locations and ultimately decided to open in Houston. And we opened our first location in 2014 after we signed our lease, I think in 2012, and it was a brand new project. So we had to wait a while for them to get at a certain point in construction to where we could start construction. And then our construction took like six months and then we had to hire and do all that stuff. So we ended up opening in January, 2014. We opened five more after that. And so we've opened a total of six and then we just launched this new concept called Daily Gather. Yeah, and I, I'm going to want you to explain a little bit more about your concept and the structure and then how it led to the second concept. But Barry, what do you think of that? I mean, we've heard many stories of people who are, say, successful in other businesses, but they just get an anchoring to learn about ours. But I don't know if we've heard many stories where the research includes additional education and all of the thoroughness before jumping in as what Aaron did. Well, I mean, I recall when I was in business school getting my MBA, there were other students like Aaron who were interested in something and they wanted the opportunity to kind of develop it as they were going through the process and not only have access to um, their professors and other academics who have business expertise, but then you have your student colleagues you can bounce ideas on. Um, But one of the questions I have, um, understand the process. couple, actually a twofold question. At some point, you had to figure out what your point of differentiation was because you weren't the only one in that. And I'm really interested to, to hear what you thought your point of differentiation was. And then um, I've got to believe at some point in doing your financial analysis, your, 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 your marketing plan, there were some issues that were of concern to you that you really had to dive into to be comfortable with. Now, I'm just guessing here, but I'm just putting myself in your shoes during this process. Um, What was the point of differentiation for you to stand out among the other competitors in that market? Um, And secondly, what were some of the areas that, hmm, uh, this could be challenging. This is going to be a little bit, this is going to be a little bit more difficult and I'm going to have to solve some serious problems here. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Um, It's, it's, it, the, the, answers are kind of, I can answer and it'll answer almost both questions. My point of differentiation was that, um, you know, there wasn't really a lot of concepts out there that were sort of between the Chipotle and the Houston's. There was nothing really in between. And so that was the segment that I really wanted to, to focus on where I could be convenient enough for lunch where, uh, you know, if you had 45 minutes for lunch and you didn't want to spend more than 15 bucks, right we were that option. Um, and then, you know, have sort of, we wanted to be kind of this neighborhood go-to place for, for anything. Right. Um, 
Now, I wanted to do that in a very thoughtful way. I wanted to provide a $30 experience for $15. And so paying more attention to design, aesthetics, furniture, uh, uniforms, things like that, uh, using locally sourced ingredients and being farm to table, that's always been our plan. That's still what we do. Um, and so, you know, at the time, the only restaurants using local ingredients were, you know, high-end restaurants, James Beard restaurants. You can, why should the average person that just wants to get a sandwich or whatever, why shouldn't they have locally grown tomatoes in their sandwich? Why is it, why can you only get that when you go to a nice restaurant? And so for me, that was like, it doesn't cost any, it's no, it's not like those expense, those tomatoes are that much more expensive than, you know, anywhere else. Um, I, I really wanted to focus on the quality, right? And so that was our differentiator. That was our point of differentiation. And then having like locally roasted coffee, having a really good coffee program, having like alcohol in that sort of environment and, and doing it in a very approachable way. Um, those were all points of differentiation. Bringing that all together was the hard part, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're focusing on that many details, it's hard, right? And there's a reason that not a lot of people do it. Um, it's hard dealing with local suppliers. Sometimes that's a challenge. Yeah. It's, it's a lot easier mm -hmm. to get all your stuff off of one 18 wheeler three times a week than it is dealing with 27 different vendors, right? I got a cheese person. I got a tortilla person. I got a bread person. I got three different produce people. I got a poultry person. I got a pork person, right? So you got all these, you know, people that you're dealing with, um, and things go wrong, right? They, they, they become short staffed or they have issues or there's a rain or a freeze and then you, you don't have strawberries and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, our differentiator was sort of the, the big challenge was how do we string all of these things together and execute this in a way, um, in a consistent way? And then how do we scale this? Because when I started this, it was like, I don't want to just open one restaurant. I want to open a bunch. And so when you, when you have all these levels of complexity, like we, we did and that we do, and you're doing a, a business model that's counter service during the day, and then you switch to full service at night, that in and of itself is a little complicated, but it's a differentiator. It's how do you do this, execute it, and then how do you scale it? And th that was the big challenge for me. And as somebody who never really worked in a restaurant or had an operations background, um, that was sort of a big, a big challenge for me that I was like, okay, this, this, this is something where we really need to focus. Do you have any partners um, who have restaurant backgrounds? And, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're clearly a bright guy and you, um, you, you have a business sense and you had business background, you understand finance, but it, it's really unusual. And you can jump in here, Chris, to back me up on this, mm -hmm. to see somebody go into this without at least a wingman who, yeah. who's, who's, who isn't their first rodeo. Um, was that your case or were you able to basically crack the code just no, using your no, own absolutely not. no uh i would i would not have made it had i tried to do it myself uh <laughs> we wouldn't be talking um <laughs> uh, my uh my first my first call my first hire uh was a friend of mine from college we were in same fraternity at ut and he was the director of operations for chick-fil-a and uh he was the guy that i knew that had the most sort of operations experience. And so I was like, well, I'm going to see what he's doing and um, talk to him about it. And so we did and we, and, and we started talking and um, ended up bringing him on and he's still my director of operations. He's still, still my right hand man. And he's my, 
sort of handles all things day-to-day ops things right now. And so, um, yeah, that was the first person, uh, first big hire that we had. And then everyone else, you know, that we brought on after that from a store level management perspective, obviously, you know, we were looking for people that had really good pedigrees and had strong ops backgrounds. Yeah, that, that was, that's how we did it. Well, that's a, that's a great first step. I think listeners need to realize that, 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 you know, you, you will, you grow from your strength. You're only going to operate as well as your strength. And so, um, but the next concern would be, okay, so, you know, you've got the right key person and you got some operations strength. Um, funding for coming in from another industry and then funding an idea initially is typically difficult. How did you structure uh, your way of raising funds? Yeah, um, obviously a, a guy that's never worked in a restaurant trying to raise money for one is, is uh, you know, is a challenge. And, you know, most people have this negative stigma about re- investing in restaurants anyway. Yes. Right. Yes. So you go, well, my uncle lost a bunch of money in his buddy's restaurant, so I'm not going to invest in yours. You, you have to, those are just hurdles you have to overcome. Banks won't lend to you because they, they get burned, you know, all the time on defaults with restaurants. So you're kind of, you're going up a pretty steep hill when you try to do the fundraising route. Um, what I told people when I was raising money for a restaurant and they were like, well, you don't have any experience or, you know, whatever. I was like, well, listen, I can hire people that do, but ultimately you're investing in me. And would you, would you rather invest in somebody who is, has a strong business acumen and understands financials and P and L's and how to, you know, not lose your money? Uh, or would you feel more comfortable investing with somebody who's, you know, worked in restaurants their whole life? And maybe is good at, you know, restaurant stuff, but maybe isn't good at the business stuff, right? Because you got to have both. I can hire that person, all right? But as an investor, who would you rather, you know, invest in? And, and so obviously that, that answer was somebody like me with my background. And so that was easy to kind of get over those hurdles. Um, the way I structured the deal was I created a holding company because, again, from, from, from day one, I wanted to open a bunch of these. Okay, so I, I created a holding company and I said, okay, the holding company is going to own all the IP and everything like that. I'm going to be the managing member of that. And it's going to own all the entities that we open. And then we are going to retain earnings and we are going to use that money to continue to grow this, to grow this company. So that is a very simple way to describe yeah. that, which is something very complicated, but that's how we structured it. So I'm assuming that um, each of the units is a an LLC underneath the uh, the holding company, and that um, you might have ownership of one unit, one LLC, but um, perhaps there's not many people, if any, other than yourself, who have a piece of the action on each of the units. So yeah, correct. And and what we did for the first unit was that was owned half by the investors and half half by the holding company which the investors also owned a part of. And, and the reason we structured the first one like that was because, you know, look, if we never did open any other units, at least there was a way for them to get distributions and liquidity back. Um, we since have rolled that unit up into the holding company. So the holding company owns 100% of every individual unit and all the investors are just in the holding company, but the holding company owns everything. So that's how it's that's how it's structured. Okay. All right. With multi-unit, um, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least in the beginning it was friends and family. Are yeah. Have you gotten to the point where 
um, angels are now, you've got the attention of angel investors at all? Well, so this year, I mean, really, you know, what I'm trying to do this year is close a private equity round. And so I've been talking to a few groups over the last few years. We've gotten mm -hmm. on their radar through our growth and success and uh, made some relationships um, with, with folks over the last few years. And we've been having those conversations. And I think we're at the point now where it makes sense both for us and for them to look at more of an institutional round uh, to really kick this thing into high gear. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping that we were able to close this year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so walk us through then. Um, now you're open, you're operating, you've got some operational strength. I know you've got <clears throat> multiple units, but what was the learning curve when you first opened? Were you happy with the operating structure, who the customer was? Um, was that on target compared to plan? Or did you learn a lot of new things once you were open? You know, I think I, I spent so much time, you know, two years in business school and basically a year and a half after that, really before we opened two years, I, I was, I felt really dialed in on what the vision and the brand and the concept and the customer, I felt really dialed in on that. And, and that, that all came to fruition. I mean, the, the customer that we were serving and the demand was there. So I was, I was very validated on my hypothesis, right? Um, and we were very fortunate that we were very busy uh, from day one. Um, and so we had kind of the money to mask our mistakes, if that makes sense. So we made a lot of mistakes, of course, as everybody does in the first restaurant. And um, I mean, we still make a lot of mistakes, but we, we made a lot of mistakes that we were able to kind of get away with because of our early success. Had we not been as successful or as, as busy uh, at the beginning, uh, we might not have made it, right? Because, you know, we just made some costly mistakes, but we were able to kind of push through and get around that, uh, fortunately. So um, the learning curve for me was, out, I, I would say, less about um, like operations and the customer and more about like the people, like the employment side. And like, you know, you go from, I mean, literally over the course of a week, two weeks, we went from having myself, my operating partner, a couple of our initial managers that we had hired to having, you know, 40 employees, right? Over two weeks, right? And, and so, you know, we didn't have systems, we didn't have checklists, we didn't have, you know, SOP. We didn't have any of that stuff. Everybody, we were just flying by the seat of our pants, right? Um, you know, there's no HR person. It's like, who's doing payroll this week? We, like, we were, I mean, it was a mess, okay? Um, but I would say, like, A, fine-tuning those things, and then B, just dealing with the people, uh, you know, employment issues, and just having, you know, 40 employees or whatever yeah. it is right off the bat. It's very, very challenging. And I've managed teams, you know, in previous lives, previous careers. Um, but it was, it was never more than, you know, five to 10 people. And they were all pretty like motivated, you know, self-starter, you know, you know, people like me, type A people that didn't really need a lot of like coddling or motivation or whatever. And then to go to having 40 people and you've got, you know, a language barrier on, on half of them. Right. And then you've got people that are motivated by different things and, you know, appreciate different kinds of things. And then they all learn differently and you have to adapt your styles to all these different things. Like that was a huge wake up call sure. for me, something that I, I, you know, was very humbled by uh, very, very quickly because I did not have my head around that. You know, we hear that, uh, don't we Barry, you know, they need to system 
to procedure in order to create consistency very quickly, it, it happens. You obviously worked through it well. Yeah, but I mean, not without a, not without a lot of collateral damage along the way. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's, it's a big wake up call. Actually, not that I'm happy you went through it because I'm sure it was frustrating and difficult and challenging and it, it meant so many sleepless nights. However, for the people who are listening to this, now here you have a guy who's coming from a corporate background, has an MBA, has thought everything through here, understands finance, understands the legal ramifications, is confident. And where he almost really hit a brick wall is in the HR and people side. This is a people business and it is challenging, even if you really think you have it handled. Hope I'm not overstating that, Aaron. Yeah, everyone has to hit the need uh, very quickly because if not, uh, and as you stated, and I want to underline that, you were fortunate that your concept was very well accepted and the customers were there, the check average was high so that you had time because sales does give you a chance, sales covers ills. So thankfully you had that to give yourself a chance to get the systems in place and uh, create procedures to follow. And that makes it a little bit easier on managing the people. So can you walk us through quickly then, how did it go into unit number two, three, four, and five in a relatively quick fashion? Yeah, Um, well, we, we actually signed the lease for the second location about seven or eight months after we opened the first. And, you know, part of that was by design and, and, and it was a month. We started the lease negotiations the same week that I had my first child and six months after we opened the first location, there's a lot going on. And I don't, I don't know how I, you know, I'm exhausted just thinking about it, but um, you know, we, once we opened the first location, we we're in the gallery area in Houston. Uh, There's a lot of people from Katy that were coming in and eating at our restaurants on the weekends. And they're like, you got to open one of these in Katy. You got to open one of these in Katy. We need something like that out there. And there was like enough that it got my attention, right? Well, you know, we were kind of looking for other locations, but not really actively because we were like, man, we, I'm still working seven days a week. I don't have my head above water. Like the thought of opening a new location is just like, I don't even, I can't do that right now. Like, Eventually we want to, but like right now, I mean, we're only six, seven months into it. Well, we found out about this location that was a second generation deal in a really great uh, development out in Katy. And so, you know, because it was second generation, the economics were really good. The rent was really good because we were going to be, um, they were going to assign the lease to us and they had, they had negotiated at least five years prior. So the terms were great. The economics were awesome. So I'm like, well, here, I can open a second location for half the price that it would cost to normally, you know, open one from scratch. And I just felt like it was kind of too good of an opportunity to pass up. So I, you know, talked it over with my wife, talked it over with my partner and, you know, everybody was kind of like, here we go. But, uh, you know, I called the investors. I said, Hey, it's a great opportunity. We ran the numbers. You know, I think this is going to work. Um, so we jumped on it and then we ended up opening in March of 2015. So about a year and a month or two after we opened our first location, um, that going from one to two is uh, harder than, you know, going from two to three, four to five, whatever. Um, that was a major kick in the teeth because we thought we had incorporated everything we learned from the first opening and we were going to be, we knew, we knew we were going to get rocked, but we thought we were better prepared, right? And it just felt like Normandy. I mean, 
we, we opened doing 50% higher net numbers than what we thought we were going to do. And we were very like aggressive, like we were prepared for the worst and we just got absolutely punched in the mouth um, to the point where we had to close early certain days because we just ran out of stuff. We couldn't even serve people. They're 45 minute ticket times. I mean, it was just, it was bad. Um, and then that also basically put a big spotlight on consistency. You know, we make everything from scratch and, you know, I would go between the locations and like the tortilla soup would be a different color and taste different than, and I'm like, well, we, we use the same ingredients. We have the same recipe. We just have two different people making it. Right. So, you know, there were these consistency issues. Um, and then, so then we start talking about a commissary. So when we opened a third location, um, about two years later, we opened that location with a much larger footprint, larger kitchen footprint. And we ran our commissary out of the back of that location um, until we got to location five. And then we outgrew it. And then we had to get a separate standalone commissary, which we have, we operate a, a, a separate standalone commissary now um, that can support, you know, all six units and, and future growth as well. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of how we did it. We opened the uh, third location in Memorial. We were in construction during Harvey, so that got delayed a little bit. But I had signed the, lo the lease for the fourth location before we even opened the third in the Heights. And so then we opened the we opened in the Heights, and then in between there, we got approached uh, about this food hall downtown. And so we ended up doing the food hall deal as well. Um, and then during COVID, we actually closed our first Katie location and upgraded into a much larger better space, another second gen location. And we got a really good, good terms on that and, and we're able to make the economics work. And that was a fantastic move. That was such a great move for us to be able to do that. Um, so we, we did that as well. And then we opened our sixth location uh, in the middle of the pandemic. So we opened our sixth location and our commissary and upgraded our Katie store, all three of those within uh, four months of each other in the middle of a pandemic. And that was very, very, um, Whoa. Rough. yeah, rough, you know, but exciting. Take a second, just to let the listeners know a little bit about dish society. Would you describe the specialty, um, um, you know, menu items and, uh, maybe a little bit of the sales mix because you're doing that flex service lunch over dinner, yeah. maybe a little bit about your, uh, um, liquor, beer, wine to food mix, just to paint a picture of what sure. we're talking about. Yeah, so um, we do breakfast, lunch, dinner, and brunch, and then we have a social hour Monday through Friday. We do breakfast every day, uh, weekday breakfast, um, we big brunch on the weekends. Again, those are all counter service. And then after, at 3.30 every day, we switch to full service. The menu doesn't really change. We just, we switch from paper napkins to linen, you know, rolled silverware. The servers wear uh, button-up shirts instead of t-shirts, things like that, real subtle differences. Um, but the food, the, the kitchen is operates in the same level. Um, our, our, our day part mix is probably, um, you know, 40% lunch, 40% dinner, 10% social hour, 10% breakfast. Very balanced. It's very balanced. In some locations skew higher for dinner and lower on lunch and vice versa. But generally it's, it's pretty well balanced. Now our check size at dinner is much higher. Um, so from a traffic standpoint, we're the busiest for lunch. Um, but because the check high is higher for dinner dollar wise, it's about the same. Um, our LBW is anywhere from eight to 15%, uh, depending on the location. Um, and that's on dine-in sales. 
Now our off-premise sales is, you know, 30 to 50%, depending on the location. As a company, it's probably in the high 30s, but we have locations that do 48%, 50% off-premise through third-party delivery, um, online ordering, to-go, call-ins, all of that stuff. So um, that's roughly kind of the mix. And going into COVID, we were about 20% as a company off-premise, uh, 25%. Okay. So well, about a 100% increase in off-premise once COVID hit. Yeah, and, and still, right, still to this day. And, and, I, and we're very fortunate that we had been doing so much activity on, on those platforms and had integrated um, Olo, a system that sort of consolidates all of your third-party delivery platforms and allows customers to order from directly from you, from your website. We had integrated that before COVID. And so it really allowed us to kind of, you know, slide right in and, and not have to do a whole lot of pivoting or integrations or anything like that during COVID uh, because we already had a lot of that system in place and we already had customers were already used to getting our food to go. And we had those systems down pretty well so that it wasn't that massive of a transition for us. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, powers thousands of restaurants with its all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform. Beyond its exceptionally easy-to-use point of sale, Touch Bistro provides best-in-class customer engagement products for online ordering, loyalty, email marketing, and gift cards. Whether you're focused on restaurant operations or keeping customers coming back for more, Touch Bistro can help. And now, back to Chris and Barry. You touched on some of the technology. Um, do you want to walk us through some of the tech that you feel was just is incredibly vital to making all this work, uh, yeah. even on the sourcing issue? Because one of the things that's hanging over my head is that you have one unit and you have everybody's got supply chain issues right now, but you're doing local. Um, you know, you can vary the menu, but if you're doing a multi-unit concept, um, typically you want to have some consistency from one place to the next. But anyway, tell me about, you know, what tech is really making the big difference for you and, and, and even go as far as the stuff that you couldn't live without. Yeah. Um, so we use compete, uh, for all of our back of house, uh, you know, um, inventory invoicing, um, cost of goods management, all of that stuff. And, and that's been a, a very successful tool for us that we integrated when we opened our second unit. Um, we, so we really like that. I, I would recommend that to anybody. Um, and, and if you are planning on growing, the earlier you ad adopt that, the, the better it'll be. Um, you can really get a good handle on your, on your situation from a cost of goods standpoint. And when you have all these fluctuating costs, you get a really quick read on it versus this, these lags. And a lot of people have, if you're not really on top of it, um, we use a uh, program called Fusion Prep for all of our uh, recipes and um, checklists and um, line checks and all of those things. So it's, they're on iPads and I can make a change right now from my laptop and it'll change on at every location on every iPad and send notifications out. So that that's been very um, effective. I would I would also suggest uh, we use Wisetail for like our online uh, e-learning LMS um, system that's not super cost effective for, you know, one to two unit types of places. And it, it's, it's a great investment if you're a concept that really wants to grow because training and systems uh, you got to have. And so that's another thing that we use that we really enjoy is this as a really strong online e-learning platform where 
our employees can go, they can log on from their phone or iPads or at home and watch videos or take training or, or post on walls or, you know, like things. And, you know, we announce our anniversaries and big company events and everything on this platform. So it's like our own internal kind of website deal. Um, so those are, those are things that I've found to be very, uh, very, very useful that I would recommend to any, anybody that's looking to consolidate, um, you know, Olo is, is something I mentioned. It streamlines all your, um, aggregates, all your, your third-party delivery systems and allows you to offer your own online ordering platform. And they have a, you know, a deal that basically it bids it out to other third-party delivery services. So even though a customer, you know, ordering from, from Dish Society, it might be delivered from by DoorDash or Uber or somebody else, but um, it's more friendly from an economic standpoint to the, to the restaurant uh, to, to order directly from us, which we saw a lot of during COVID and we were able to really grow that part of our business. So that takes us to daily gather. You have a second concept. Maybe you could walk us through how you develop that idea. How is it different from Dish Society style of service menu? Um, location, financing, structure, and this was all done during uh, the pandemic when I know you had your hands full with uh, the other curveballs. Right, yeah, so Daily Gather is a concept that, I, that I've had some version of it in my head for several years. Uh, originally came about, I was looking at a location for Dish Society uh, in a part of Houston, and I ultimately past and I didn't I didn't love the location for a dish society but I was like something a little bit more elevated that had this this and this I think would really do well here and so I started just I got kind of obsessed with that idea and I put together kind of a concept book and and um, business plan for that uh, and and you know ultimately that we were I came to the realization I got enough on my plate right now with Dish Society. I don't want to be screwing around with these other other stuff right now. I thought it, at that point I thought it would have been a, more of a distraction than an opportunity. So I, I kind of shelved it, um, knowing that at some point we'd be able to you know run with it. Um, fast forward 2019 December, uh, International Smoke, uh, which was a restaurant concept that was located in City Center in West Houston, um, went out of business. Uh, they were locked out and. Um, had a very good relationship with the landlord and office in city center at the time. So I, I saw this kind of unfold right before my eyes and met with them and kind of did a handshake deal on the spot. Um, had an LOI in January, February ish of 2020. And we got the lease the first, uh, first week of March in 2020. And I kicked it over to my attorney and I said, Hey, let's start looking at this. And then the next week they shut everything down. So luckily we hadn't signed anything. Um, but you know, at that point, I just kind of put it in the very back of my head and, you know, everybody was in survival mode for a long time. And, you know, about a year later, um, I start talking to the landlord again and they're like, Hey, you know, we got some people interested in the space. If you want to move forward, let's move forward. So, you know, that was early 21. Um, and we got the lease done and then started construction on that. But, you know, I didn't, I had to, you know, we changed the name several times. We had to create the, the brand. We had to create all of these things, the menu and, you know, bring on a whole new different kind of skill set for that and different people and um, design the space and the furniture and everything was totally different, right? The LBW program, everything was going to be totally different than Dish Society. So, you know, it was a pretty big undertaking um, and it's a big space. 
but it was a second generation space. So we were able to, you know, kind of inherit a, a lot of FF and E and, um, we ended up mostly just doing cosmetic stuff and enhancing the patio, um, spent a lot on furniture and, and, uh, you know, things like that to make it, you know, match our brand and, and, you know, what we wanted to do there. Uh, but we were able to finance that internally through our holding company, uh, you know, as well. And, um, so, you know, even though COVID was devastating for us, for everybody in the industry as a whole, we were able to, you know, financially do okay. Um, and actually make some long-term operational improvements that, um, helped us be even, you know, more profitable than we would have been, um, last year, especially. And then, you know, several rounds of PPP funding and government incentives and things like that allowed us to take advantage of some opportunities as well and, and grow the company. And you know, I think we added probably a hundred employees through COVID. So, uh, you know, it's doing its job and it, and it worked and we were able to create a lot of opportunities for people. Um, so it's been, it's been exciting from that, from that side of it. And is commissary part of your, um, structure at all? Yeah. Yeah. The commissary supports all of the, uh, all of the entities. Yeah. It, we basically, we run it as a break even entity and all the costs that get associated with producing food gets factored into the price of the food. And it's essentially sold to the other restaurants and compete, which I was talking about earlier has a commissary function on there. So it's, it's able to run all of that and, um, you know, manage the cost of goods and everything correctly. And so, um, you know, otherwise that'd be a nightmare, but luckily they, they've got a, a program for that. So that's how we, that's how we do that. So the commissary is structured as a vendor. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. And daily gather has a different specialty, um, uh, then does society, does it maybe share the same customer base or yeah. uh, maybe you could give us a little outline of uh, how is it operating? Um, is it a flex service too? No. So it's full service. Uh, you, you know, at dish society, our PPA is about $20 at daily gather. It's about 50. So it's a, it's just a different experience. Um, it's more elevated, but we are serving the same the same demographic, the same group, just in a different way. And for different occasions, you know, we are, we do, we do have lunch, we do have dinner. Um, and then we have brunch on the weekends. We don't do weekday brunch. We don't do counter service. It's definitely it's full service all day, higher PPA. Like I said, our LBW so far is about 34, 35%, um, and, which has been great. And um, we have strong bar business, good social hour, all of those things. Uh, but yeah, it's just a different, it's just a different experience. It's not a rushed experience. It's not a, you know, it is kid friendly, but it's probably not a place that you're going to take kids and hang out for three hours. Now, because we're right on this central green and city center, you can sit on the patio and enjoy yourself while your kids go run around, which, which is a great benefit. And, um, you know, we're in a very high profile location in city center and the development there. Um, so that, that we benefit from a lot of um, walk, you know, foot traffic from the retail people that live there. There's a lot of offices there. You got Amazon, you got Marathon Oil, you got Microsoft, you got all these places that office there. So we have a good, strong daytime uh, foot traffic deal. There's a hotel right above us. So we get sort of uh, conventions and things like that and a lot of families. So it's, I mean, it's a great mix of, of folks for sure. So- Is franchising um, on the radar in terms of your growth model? At some point, are you going to, or is, grow, is company company owned and operated really your 
your thing. Yeah, I'm not a uh, I'm not a big fan of franchising. I you know I for as com- as complex as we are, mm-hmm. uh, I just don't think it makes sense. If if we were doing something like chicken sandwiches or something that's pretty easy to execute and stamp out, I, I would not be against franchising. But just because of the complexity and the layers and everything that we have to, yeah, it's just really hard. I, I feel like we have to have kind of control over that to make sure that we don't dilute it. So mm-hmm. sure. How about um, off-premise events, catering? Has that been a request or is that something that's already been developed? And if so, is it run out of the commissary or does it get delivered out of units? Yeah, we've always had a catering, um, a big, a pretty decent catering business. I think it, should, it, it from from my, my expectations are much higher for, I, I think we're leaving a lot on the table on our catering. I think we have a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Um, but usually it's box lunches, it's breakfast tacos, it's things um, that we kind of, you know, easy stuff. Um, now with COVID and office occupancy being low, our catering is kind of taking a hit from a, from a B2B kind of deal. Um, we, we do do a lot of like, you know, showers and, you know, things at the restaurant. We have gotten into off-premise things as well from a catering deal. It's starting to pick back up. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, probably the last several months of last year were our most successful catering months, probably as a company we've ever had. Um, it's nice to see, uh, you know, and, and we do run that out of certain locations. So, uh, and that's just based on proximity to where the event is. Um, or, or where, who the client is. And so we run a lot of that and out of, and, and, you know, we have a location, our first location, we used to run a lot of our catering out of our first location. And when that dried up and that one's surrounded by a lot of office buildings, that one's taken a pretty big hit. The rest of our units, um, our downtown location is currently closed. We've opened and closed several times throughout the last two years. Uh, we're hoping to open again kind of permanently in March. The other location that's sort of, in a central business district ish type of area where we did run a lot of catering. That one took a pretty big hit and is still mm-hmm. kind of reeling. It hasn't caught back up to pre COVID. Our other locations are up double digits over pre COVID. So those are doing well. Um, but yeah, catering is something that I think we have a big opportunity with and we're just kind of trying to find our way back uh, to those things. We have some really great relationships with a lot of companies and, kind of education type of things. And, uh, you know, we're able to, to lean on those, but we'd like to get more for sure. Mm-hmm. You've looked into the business um, in a pretty detailed manner. And a lot of entrepreneurs that I run into, they're captivated by the whole ghost kitchen, virtual kitchen thing. Now with you, um, if I'm hearing you correctly and I understand your concept, um, it, it's fast casual but it leans toward a, what i'll call a hedonic experience this is you're trying to create something where people do want to come in and sit down and have a drink and and be there um you know uh, in terms of of demand for that type of experience still are, are you are you more bullish on that on-premises hedonic experience or um are you captivated by like everybody else with hey listen i can you know, create something in an industrial park somewhere and just have DoorDash uh, deliver it. Um, you seem to be kind of bullish on the the guest experience um, as much as anything else. Well, both. I mean, look, if we didn't have six locations pretty evenly distributed around town, we would have 
we would have definitely pursued the ghost route. I mean, with 40, 50% of our sales essentially, you know, being to go, we're, we're, uh, I mean, we're kind of operating ghost kitchens mm-hmm. really in a lot of our, on our locations. So from that regard, um, we're kind of covered. It didn't really make sense for us. Now I've got concepts, other concepts that I would love to run out of a dish society that are, that are, you know, totally uh, different. Um, but, you know, we'll get to that at some point. Mm-hmm. I am bullish on the customer experience because I think, and th- this is why I think our daily gather concept is coming in at a really strong time. People have, I think, took for granted the human experience going into COVID. They were reminded, we were all reminded of just like, you know, how special those moments are mm-hmm. and how many of those moments are quite frankly made and enjoyed around a meal, right? Whether it's at your house or it's in someone's backyard or it's at a restaurant or wherever, like we just really missed that everybody, that human interaction. And so um, I think there's this massive pent up demand for like getting back to normal face to face, sitting down and enjoying the things that were taken away from us. I mean, it was literally taken away from us. The right to go eat at a restaurant was taken away from us. And it's not really until something you lose something that you really appreciate it. Right. And so I think that people are, they want, they want to get back. They want to get back to normal. They want to sit down. They want to have face-to-face meetings. They there's people that, yeah, they like working from home, but I mean, that gets old real fast, right? I'm not a work from home guy. Um, and you know, I want, I love human interaction. I crave it. People crave hospitality. They want to be taken care of. And so I don't think that'll ever go away. I think that human need in that connection, that desire to be around other people will always be there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm massively bullish on, on that for sure. So much so that I created a whole concept around Mm -hmm. called daily gather, like, Hey, let's gather together in groups and share and do all of these things. Right. So, uh, we don't even do to go out of daily gather. We will at some point, but we're not doing it right now. It's totally just on-premise only. And most of that's, you know, operational things like kinks. we got to work out before we're going to start, you know, shoveling stuff in, in brown bags that leave. And then part of that staffing and part of that's just some of that food just doesn't travel well. And so we're kind of experimenting with what we're, are we even going to do off premise? But yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing people at daily gather and even at Dish society, they're coming in and they're, they're hanging out for like three hours. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not always ideal when you need to turn tables, but I feel like the people just missed it. They just really want that connection again. Mm-hmm. We've heard from uh, other operators, you know, that they've had a tough time uh, with staff coming back, management staying, you know, we heard the term, the great, you know, resignation. Um, and uh, we've seen some, some facts, I guess, to that matter where uh, we've lost maybe some key people in our industry and it's hard getting them back if they've already been entrenched in some other industry during the pandemic. But during this time, you've obviously, you've grown revenue, you've grown units. Could you tell us a little bit about how you attract uh, and keep staff and management? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think growth is how you attract people. People tend to want to hitch their wagon to something that's, you know, aligns with their goals, their core values and provides opportunities. Um, we have very publicly and clearly been growing and been doing a lot of things, you know, more things right than we're, do- we're doing wrong. Um, and I think that that's attractive to people. Um, so from a management side, 
uh, and, and people who are just even, you know, you have servers or whatever, and they, they see the opportunity to, Hey, like I can be a manager relatively quickly here if I, you know, get things done and I, and I perform and like, I can move to a different market and I can do this. There's all these different opportunities, right? Because we're going to expand into new markets. And so I think we walk the walk and I think that that means a lot to people. We're also a values driven company. So our core values drive everything we do and that we make all of our decisions based on our core values. And I think there's a lot of people that appreciate that. And we don't hire people that don't align with our core values and people are attracted to us because of our core values. And so they're more likely to stay. Um, we don't always get it right. I mean, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've lost people and we, you know, sometimes we mess things up and, and, you know, we, we sever good relationships over mistakes or just whatever, like we're not perfect by any means. And we've had our fair share of, you know, retention problems. A lot of it comes down to, you know, over the last two years, especially we're bringing people in, we're sort of going through COVID and all these things are changing on a weekly, daily basis. And we're also, we added two new units and a commissary and a whole new concept. So, I mean, we're, we're moving really fast and we're not getting everything right. And, you know, there's sort of this balance of moving fast enough to where you don't have to slam the brakes on. Maybe you just let off the gas a little bit, but you got to be moving forward, right? You can't lose the momentum. And so that doesn't work for a lot of people. Some people want a lot of structure and a lot of predictability and routine and this and that. And that's just not how we operate. And when, when I interview people, I tell them that I kind of try to talk them out of it. Honestly, I'm like, look, we're moving at a fast pace here and we break stuff all the time and we aren't fully implemented with certain things and it can get a little chaotic at times, but we're growing and this is how it works. And um, you know, that's part of the, they call them growing pains for a reason, right? It hurts to grow. And, and that's where we're at right now. So I think, we might do a, sometimes we do a poor job of communicating that. Sometimes we do a poor job of, of, um, you know, not setting people up for success and not giving them all the tools and things that they need to be successful. And then they're just like, I'll go work somewhere else where, where they do have more systems in place or they are more structured, or I can get my schedule two or three weeks in advance and not three days before whatever it is, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of that, those kind of things. Right. And then sometimes we prematurely promote people. You know, and that's out of a, a need. We need to fill this need and, you know, Hey, you're pretty good at your job. Have you ever thought about management? We want to put you at a management position. And they're like, well, you know, I don't know. We're like, Hey, you're a manager. And then, you know, guess what? We don't have this big robust management program. We're getting better at that, but we're kind of throwing people to the fire in some regards. And I'm not proud of that. And we've gotten a lot better at managing that chaos but there's still and will always will be an element to that. And that's not for everybody. And I think sometimes that detracts certain people, but it also attracts people. So it kind of goes hand in hand. But um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I, I said we had more success hiring managers, uh, high caliber managers. There's a lot of them out there feeling really good about that. It's really the, the entry level folks, the, the guest facing folks, the servers, the bartenders, the dishwashers, the cooks, like that's where we're really been struggling servers, you know, mostly, and I get it. I mean, they've had inconsistent money for two years. It's, yeah. I, I get it, but, um, that's, that's where we're struggling. And then, you know, it's, you, we've gone from this transactional last two years where like, Oh, I can't be within six feet of you and you can't see me smile. Cause I'm wearing a mask and I have to hand you this food on a tray and I don't, you can't touch the salt and pepper shakers and all this stuff. Right. 
And we've lost the element of hospitality. We've lost like this interaction of like this warmth and Hey, we can smile at each other. And Hey, I know how you're feeling. Cause I can read your body language and you're not wearing a mask. And there's a whole lot of that, that we have to undo because everybody's been programmed over the last two yeah. years to change all these things. And that's been frustrating for me because our guest experience is not where it used to be. You, you go into a dish society and, and even daily gather, like you're not going to get the same level of hospitality you would have two years ago. You're just not. And that's something we're working on and we're trying to, to work through, but I feel like that's every restaurant I eat out all the time. Sure. And, and I, I'm, I'm receiving that as a customer too. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's been a huge challenge for sure. I think you've just hit the short term challenge of the industry. Uh, yeah. And that is managing higher hospitality levels while juggling all of the issues. We, we hear that. And so, yes, that's, it's a very good point you make. Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah. Everybody's like, Oh yeah, we want to come support all these restaurants and we're going to support you and they want to come out. And it's like, well, Hey, we only have three servers tonight. So sorry. You know, like, mm -hmm. and two of the line yeah. cooks called off. So your food's going to take 30 minutes. And then it's like, Oh, I was looking forward to going out and having this great experience. And it's just not that great. And so you, you can only, you know, ride that for so long before people start getting fed up and finding other solutions or whatever those are. And it's just, that's the struggle, right? And that's hard. We, we're in the hospitality business. We want to create those exceptional experiences for people. And, you know, it's just very, very difficult to do that right now. Um, and so it's, it's hard. And I mean, the people have, the consumer has been patient, you know, but that's only going to last for so long. Right. And I don't, and I don't blame them and it's hard. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we wish you continued success and, and we wish you the best working through the short-term challenge of raising that level of hospitality when you are, you're up against these hurdles with staff still. I, uh, we're seeing that it's getting a little bit better. I know that, you know, you yeah. mentioned that earlier too, uh, yeah. but we still have a little ways to go. Uh, yeah. But for today, it looks like we're running out of time. So I think, you know, on behalf of Barry and myself, we certainly want to thank you for carving some time out of your day, sharing your story, your pearls of wisdom, and, um, and some of the specifics about how you do what you do uh, with our listeners. I think everyone's going to be better for it. We're big fans of your concepts. Uh, continued success. Uh, keep setting the standard. Keep working through your issues. And uh, we hope that we can, you know, see you again, uh, maybe on a future corner booth. And that was very instructive. Really appreciate your insights and all this. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And everybody, follow us and uh, hope to catch up with you soon on the next Corner Booth. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank Touch Bistro for sponsoring this episode. Touch Bistro provides an all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform for venues of all sizes, from food trucks to fine dining. Go to touchbistro.com to find out how Touch Bistro can solve your restaurant technology challenges today. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.